0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, causing a big stink, new faster than light towels, slip the reins of causality, and soak up shower water before you bathe. Maybe it's time to drip dry, in that case, partner. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization. Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talked to Dr. John Lambshead this time about his great nonfiction article that's up at Bain.com. It's there on the front page and will be available long term in the free ebook collection at Bain eBooks in the collection called Free Nonfiction 2018. That article is called Why FTL Will End the Universe and Six Ways to Avoid It in an SF Story, FTL being Faster Than Light Travel. And John gives a very good scientific explanation of why this might be so and some ways around it for writers if not for scientists in the near future, unfortunately. So stay tuned for that. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. Just want to let you know that the Bane Challenge Coins are at the mint. We are proud to be able to offer you for sale for the first time in the history of Bane, these Challenge Coins, Here are some of what's available. See if you know which series and authors these belong to. The Rabin Gap Commemorative Coin. The 555th Mobile Infantry Unit Coin. The USS Des Moines Challenge Coin. And the USS Salem Challenge Coin. Did we just hear the collective voice of an entire planet calling out John Ringo? I think we did. The A Desert Called Peace Challenge Coin. The Legion 4 unit coin. That's right, Tom Kratman and the Carrera series there. The Ripple Creek security coin. The Military Forces Freehold of Grain challenge coin. The Special Warfare Combat Leopard Division challenge coin. Hey, if you said Michael Z. Williamson and the Freehold universe, you'd be dead right. The Inauguration of President Moore challenge coin. The Warp Speed and the Quantum Connection challenge coin. You can bet we're talking about Travis S. Taylor. Each coin is $15 by all 13 author coins, and the I Read Bain book coin comes free. To find out more, check out the ChallengeCoin page at Bain.com or write to info at Bain.com. These coins were designed by Jack Wilder with the active participation of the authors. We are taking orders for the first pressing now. Delivery will be in approximately four to six weeks. Oh, yeah. I want to welcome Dr. John Lambshead to the podcast. Hi, John. Welcome back.
2: Hello, Tony. Yes, uh, it's good. great to be back. Uh,
1: Dr. John Lambshead is a retired senior research scientist in marine biodiversity at the National History Museum London. He's a biologist. He was also the visiting chair at Southampton University Oceanography and Regents Lecturer, University of California. He writes military history and designs computer and fantasy games. Uh, still and lamb said is john is the author of swashbush john is the author of swashbuckling fantasy lucy's blade and the really fun contemporary ur- urban fantasy i urge you to check that out if you haven't wolf in shadows wolf and shadow and co-author with nationally best-selling author david drake of science fiction adventures into the hinterlands and into the maelstrom part these are the citizen series which are uh, very cool um, sort of retelling of uh you could say the american revolution uh in space although you know the way david drake and and now and with john do things it's not exactly a historical parallel it's just sort of a ins- inspiring uh nugget right john with
2: yeah absolutely right yeah. sort of like a parable really yeah
1: and uh he also writes some nonfiction articles for the website and fiction articles as well but um right now at the bain website we have an article by john why ftl will end the universe in six ways to avoid it in an sf story so john why um why'd you feel compelled to warn us about uh, ftl were you worried about the fate of the universe or just worried about science fiction or both
2: uh not at all I, I as i said i'm a biologist not a physicist so i tend to read popular physics articles in an effort to try and grasp what the physicists are talking about um particularly as physics is making a kind of overlap at the moment with um biology you, know, you may remember my previous article for Bain was about whether the brain is a quantum machine um and uh It it struck me after reading through that most people know or think they know why you can't have a faster than light drive. You know, most people know you you stick a huge thruster on the back of a spacecraft as it goes faster and faster. It starts to weigh more and more uh, until the, the mass goes up to infinity at the speed of light, which of course you can't reach. So when you read science fiction, and this goes way, way back, uh, science fiction authors tend to come up with really interesting, ingenious ways to sort of get around this problem. You know, the Star Trek ships bend space in front of them. They warp space. They've got a warp drive. Um, Star Wars has a hyperflight type drive button. You know, press the red button and bang, you're there. And then other people have Stargates and all these various methods. But I think it's not really realized that the problem with going faster than light isn't the method by which you do it. It's the mere fact that you go faster than light that creates the issues. It really came to my attention because I I got the contract to uh, do the official Doctor Who war game, Ah. Warlord games, and I I had to... And and so, of course, obviously, I I still kind of boned up a bit on time travel. (laughs) And I came into something immediately, which is that any method of moving information faster than light, and information in the broadest sense here now, you know, a spacecraft is information, uh, is also a time machine. A faster than light drive is a time machine. Um, and the more I delved into Doctor Who, it became really rather fascinating, because I don't know who's advising them, they've had some very clever writers, Doctor Who. Uh, writers who seem to understand the problems. Um, and the problem is simply that once you go faster than light, you come you are in a different frame of reference to the frame of reference you left. It's very difficult to explain. It's easier if you read the article, but the, but essentially, uh, there's a kind of cone uh, of when any event happens, there's a kind of cone, which is the light speed of light spreading out from this point in time and space. And if you move outside that cone, you've left that cone's frame of reference. Um, It's all connected with the fact that light always moves at the same speed. Again, it's something people know, they don't really think about. You know, if you, if you, um, if I'm in an airplane and I'm going to fire a missile, the best way of doing it is to go as fast as you can before you fire the missile. Because if you're traveling at a thousand kilometers an hour and the missile does 2,000, then when you fire it, you add them together and you get 3,000. If you were traveling at only 500, you'd only get... 2,500. So the missile will go further the faster you are when you fire it. You know, everybody knows this.
3: Yeah, but um, light doesn't
2: work like that. A okay. beam of light coming off the aircraft is moving at the speed of light. doesn't matter what speed the aircraft's moving at. Now, we get used to a world where time is fixed, but we can vary speed. So if you want to go somewhere in a shorter time, you double your speed and vice versa. But when you start playing around at the speed of light, the speed of light is fixed. So time is the variable. So as you go, as you, most people we know, as you go faster and faster in a spacecraft, time slows down. And this has been shown by practical experiments with things going around the earth very fast. Um, but what that means is it's, it's time that becomes the variable. And it's quite possible to devise situations where a faster-than-light spacecraft will arrive back before it took off. Now, if we get into that situation. Everything we think we know about science, the universe, depends on causality. Event A causes B. You don't get a result before you get the cause. You don't, you don't hear a rock hit the ground and then drop the rock. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of... This is a core of the, our entire existence, our entire science, our entire rationality and way of doing things.
3: And how we, but the minute uh, you get into
2: fast of the light, yeah. you can get a result before you get the cause. So causality breaks down. And it's all connected with relativity, with um in science theory of relativity which of course is a core theory people understand what scientists mean by the word theory a core theory is a piece of fundamental knowledge something that has been tested and tested and tested and is now absolutely locked into the center of a scientists scientific rationality evolution is a core theory for example in biology now so what do you do? You 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 basically one engineer has written a very good article on this new website says it's as if the universe is saying to you you can have faster than light, causality and um, oh god, I'm losing my train faster than light and causality um, but you can't have them both together.
1: Uh, you could have relatively relativity, causality, and FTL, but you got to pick.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Sorry, um, <laughs> it's getting late in the evening. Here. Well, <laughs> that was space, but
1: that's in your article, by the way. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, you've got these three variables, but you can't have all three. If you insist on causality and you insist on faster than light, it means that relativity is wrong. If you insist on causality and you insist relativity is fundamentally correct which everything we know about science as it is, then you can't have faster than light. Or you can have relativity, you can go faster than light, and then causality flies apart. And a lot of the article is trying to think, well, what would happen if causality flies apart? What would happen when you can't guarantee that what you do now has an outcome in the future, but the the outcome might be in the past?
1: Well, let me, before we get into those those possibilities for science fiction um so if i'm understanding you right what you're saying is is that you that faster than light travel is not an engineering problem it's a problem in the basic fabric of existence if yes uh,
2: it's not like going far through the sound barrier. that was a purely engineering problem um all it required was the development of more powerful engines, better understanding of aerodynamics and metallurgy. And once you advanced all those three together, you you can move to a supersonic aircraft. Um, you know, it, was, it was simply, and it could be done by trial and error to a large degree. You, you may remember the stories of the early jets and how they used to fall out of the sky for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you talk about faster than light, you're talking about something that is anathema to our whole understanding of the way the universe works. So
1: what are we going to do about this, John? We like to have it in our stories.
2: Yeah. Well, i, I, come, up with, <laughs> I come up with the various possibilities for a writer. I mean, the, can I say my favorite is you completely ignore the whole thing. Look, when when the ancient Greeks and Romans read Homer, no, I don't think they thought that they could go out and find Circe's Island or the uh, place of the Lotus Eaters. Uh, it, it's just a bloody good cracking story you know it's a good story with interesting characters and you know they all settle down to admire the poet's use of flow of language and so forth and so forth um what we're doing with science fiction is we're writing fantasy fiction and fiction not true fantasy something imagined so my first suggestion is you just simply ignore the science and write space opera um you can, of course, write space opera that doesn't include Faster Than Light. But you know, it's never very satisfying, is it, Tony? What do you think?
1: Um, you have to make that the center of the story problem if you are going to do that. That's generally been my... Uh, it there's... all comes
2: about colony ships or, you know, the time dilation. Do you remember Paul Anderson's wonderful story, Tau C T? about the spacecraft that um, th- through some engineering accent can't stop accelerating cuz so it's moving at close to the speed of light yeah and uh, of course it's the, the clock inside is traveling at one speed and the universe is aging incredibly outside
1: <laughs> Yeah, and there's the you know the great Heinlein uh, story about the twins that one of them goes out and the other one ages at a different rate and they have a, a telepathic connection a faster-than-light communication technique
2: yeah yeah, uh-huh. uh, which is where the problems all start. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it, it, you're quite right, Tony. It becomes a story in itself. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's kind of being done, you know. Yeah. <sighs> if you can write a better story than Paul Anderson, go ahead. Because uh, otherwise, you'll find yourself just repeating his ideas, only not, probably not yeah, quite it's as just, well. At uh, least I wouldn't, anyway. and
3: right. um,
1: you, you want to tell other stories.
2: Yeah, and the great thing about space opera is it's it's very like the odyssey it's about people in boats sailing into the fantastic unknown um and if you take that away you you take away the whole point now there is another way of dealing with it which is philip farmer used i think lots of people have used it but philip farmer i think was the best with his um world of tears series Mm -hmm. where the gates you go through are not faster than light travel gates. They move from one dimension to another, one universe to another. Um, and, of course, there's no faster than light connection then because the universes aren't connected. And I always think The World of Tears is very is really a sort of space opera, um, except that you're not sitting in a spacecraft, you're climbing through a door. <laughs> Um, Stargate is a kind of space opera where you are moving faster than light. It's when you these gates don't take you in a different universe they take you somewhere else in our universe if I've under, remembered it correctly. Yeah,
1: And in a way the science fiction in David Weber's uh, multiverse series I don't know if you've read that one yet but um,
2: I haven't yet, no. It,
1: it it kind of works in the same way in that it connects uh, realities where the physics are different on each side.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's That is a way to go, and I think it's a good way. Um, You know, in Philip Farmer's stories, all these little pocket universes are artificial, including the one we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, But but yeah, they could be real. I mean, one of the things I try to ask in the article is what happens if you do break causality? what happens to the universe. And actually, doc- the doctor. some of the Doctor Who scripts have handled this extremely well. I mean, there's, there's various things you can postulate that in practice you can't break causality. You know, go back and shoot your grandfather and uh, say you just find out your grandmother was a naughty lady <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you aren't who you think you are. Um, <laughs> that wasn't or you're going to try to go back and shoot your grandfather and the gun won't work or you can't arrive mm-hmm. at the right time or or you just can't do it. Something, the, the way mm-hmm. the universe works, right. you can't break causality, even if theoretically you could.
1: So if the you go is, back in time to shoot your grandfather, you may have caused your grandmother's infidelity. Is that what you're saying?
2: Something like that, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you could, in a way, you've created a universe where causality, that, that's a way of looking at it. The universe reshuffles itself, so causality isn't affected. Mm-hmm. Um, the other possibility is, it's quite a fun one, and uh, Father's Day and Doctor Who covered this, uh, where doc- the doctor breaks all his rules and takes an assistant back into their own timeline. And uh, when you watch what the assistant, the assistant of course saves her father from being run over, and all hell breaks out because you've just broken causality. And uh, in this particular Doctor Who story, you get these monsters from the time vortex who seal the whole thing off, like um, white blood cells around a wound. And so the universe works to protect causality. But Doctor Who's fascinating because the whole thing depends on frame of reference. We've got this idea in our heads from living on Earth that everybody is in the same frame of reference because to a large degree we are because we can't move faster than light, so we're in a single frame of reference. Um when the doctor gets into the TARDIF, it's a faster than light machine, so it is a time machine. It's that is that is exact those two are exactly the same thing. But you've got to ask yourself is what is the doctor's frame of reference? And I've noticed something about these stories. When he goes back to Gallifrey he always arrives after he left. It's almost as if the TARDIS is such a sophisticated machine that it can carry Gallifrey's frame of reference with it. So the Doctor is always on Gallifreyan time, I suppose you could call it. Hmm. Um, with his assistants, he when he drops them off, up, he drops them off later down their timeline. And he sometimes says things like, "I can't change that; it's already happened." The assistants say, "But you change time, or, you change things all the time. You change time all the time." Well, he doesn't he doesn't change things that have happened in his own timeline or Gallifrey's timeline he changes things that happen in Earth's timeline but there you know if he goes back and say he was responsible for causing Pompeii to explode the volcano to explode then he always was we just didn't know until they broadcast the episode that that was what he was doing but he never if he he sees one of his assistants killed he can't Go back in time and stop it and bring him back. The, he, what he says is, I can't change it. It's already happened. What he means is it's already happened in my timeline, Gallifrey's timeline. So in other words, something, you know, the TARDIS famously translates everything into English.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Sounds. What's? You may have noticed it's British English as well.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: Sophisticated machine. Oh,
1: I've noticed that it puts U's in, in all the OR words, yes.
2: Yes, I mean all the aliens across the, U space and time speak speak London English, so well it's it's just well known, you know, that's what the TARDIS does. Well, it it it's that's something to do with it carrying this single frame of reference around. But it's very clever. I mean Doctor Who is actually very very clever. It's a lot more sophisticated than it looks.
1: Yeah, well it's a, it's a great show, and obviously the the writers have have pulled their hair out trying to. Trying to deal with these issues to make it. Yeah, uh,
2: cool. and they don't always get it right. Look, there how many? There must have been thousands of right write, writers from 1966 to now on all the books, the films, the, the TV sets, the audio dramas. So they aren't always going to get it right, but you have to give them credit for trying.
1: Yeah. So you've got your number one issue uh, solution is ignore the problem. Uh, you. Um, Sidestep the issue is, is, I suppose, this one. Um, what about uh, number two? Choose causality and FTL together and get rid of relativity.
2: Yeah, I tell you that's what David Drake and I did in the um, American Revolution stories. Uh, we don't explicitly say it, but if you look at the way they're traveling through, uh, it keeps making reference to ancient superstitions like quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> See. The, they didn't know how the universe worked, so basically, what we're saying there, although I don't say it explicitly, we're saying you know, relativity was just an idea dreamt up by the rather like the ancients thought that um, Zeus threw thunderbolts, lightning with thunderbolts as the gods, and they lived on Mount Olympus. It's, you know, relativity. If you go far enough into the future, it's possible that relativity might be seen in that light. That we really don't understand how the universe works. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it, you know, it's a rationale. Yeah. It works for the story.
1: And your number three was invent a plot voucher. Uh.
2: Yeah. Um, this is a, a Gubbins device, it's another name for a Gubbins device, which, um, you know, I now switch on our magic frame of reference field calibration machine, which stops all these nasty causality things happening. Do you, again, it, when you're doing a story, you just don't need to... Go into how this thing works or why it works, because the guys using it in the spacecraft wouldn't know how it worked. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they just know that when you press the button to go boom in hyperspace, that something called a mm-hmm. cali- time calibre reference calibration device also cuts in, <laughs> yeah. um, and they may even have a you know look for the look at the holographic control panel just to make sure the little green light is winking before they press the button. Yeah. says you 're good to go because <laughs> you would 't want any nasty upsets
3: yeah yeah
1: this is the way that we operate our, 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 this is the way we operate our phones now, so
2: yeah I mean it, it, you know I mean you and I are now talking through something that's being passed around the world on satellites mm. And undersea cables, you know. I mean, I'm to live just outside London where these huge nodes for the entire world, it's amazing what in the world passes through London through its various undersea cables and satellite links. Uh, but we don't actually know, do we? Um, do we think about it?
1: Well, I I trust our, our ant overlords to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Quite. or in this case you trust the 16 year old geek who's probably designed the algorithm
1: that's right yeah. yeah and now he's now he's taking all his money and, Bitcoin, and did he try
2: to explain it to us
1: which I don't understand yeah
2: um, we, we we all live in a world where we use things we don't actually understand and we don't I, need to so I used to that's what, that's what the um, the plot device is it's just a gubbins yeah. um, you can mention it in passing but what it does is it just releases you. And, and I wouldn't go too deeply into what, how it works. But, and you know, as I said, you don't need to because the people using the thing wouldn't know how it worked either or care. Uh, in, you know, um, 20 years ago, I used to service my cars myself. I open the bonnet now and I can't even get to the spark plugs.
1: I know it may not even have spark plugs as far as I, can. I was thinking the other day, the way that, um, you know, my dad taught me how to, how to check an alternator to make sure there wasn't moisture in there. I mean, a uh, 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 the distributor and now I, God knows if there's a distributor anymore it, or what it is, I can't teach my son anything about break, working on cars.
2: I had a Triumph sports car because my family, that was a family business selling Triumphs. And, uh, you know, I could tune the SU carbs and adjust the, the um, distributor cap and <laughs> all sorts of things. Um, my, I've got now a, a Vauxhall, which is a General Motors make when I bought it. It's been sold at Renault, I think. And um, it's, a, it's a fairly new car, but it started to play up. It's still under warranty. So, you know, I called out the um, breakdown people and the guy took one look he said, oh, I know what this is. This is happening all the time. He said, uh, Vauxhall's quite bad. He said, incidentally, Audis are even worse. It's, each cylinder now has its own completely independent ignition system.
3: Goodness. Uh, yeah.
2: And it, it, it sits on top of the engine as a sort of stack. Uh, and I didn't even know these things existed. But I um, took it into the garage, and the guy said, oh, yeah, that'll be the, um, I can't even remember the name now, something spike stack or something. Um, yeah, we just take it off put new and I'm under warranty, and you'll be fine. <laughs> um, well,
1: at least it d- didn't cause a causality paradox.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> it broke, but, yeah, so. you know, my the engine on my car has got it's got variable valve technology, it's computer controlled. Um it's a very clever engine. <laughs> uh, the idea of fiddling with it myself is just insane.
1: Yeah. Well, I I got to tell you every time I turn my car on is a violation of causality these days. But, <laughs>
2: Does it actually work? Yes,
1: <laughs> that it actually turns over. Yeah,
2: that, 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 I, I think what you do then is you put your
0: belief system on hold. That's right. In the gear, you
1: know. <laughs> We're going into fantasy. So another, uh, another, you have embraced the issue as your number four. Um, Tackle the time paradoxes and causality maintenance as a component. Yeah, this is the part.
2: Doctor Who approach. Yeah, you make it a core part of the story. Um, I was thinking when I wrote it, not just of Doctor Who, but of a story I read years years ago by Heinlein, a little short story called, I think, By His Bootstraps, uh, about a man who organises a nice, cushy little billet for himself in the far future using a time machine. Um, and it, it it follows the links of the man meets himself but doesn't realize it is himself. And the fact that at one point he has two hats that are identical and another time he doesn't seem to have a hat at all. Um, it's an interesting story, but it, you, it, the only thing is it's got the same problem that you identified you know, with the slower-than-light time travel, that the effect becomes the story. It's so powerful it takes over everything else. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is you need to be a really good plot writer. I mean, this is a David Drake job. You know, David's great skill is plot writing. And uh, it needs someone like a Drake or a Heimlem to plot it all out. Um, because it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. I don't think I'd like to try it. Mm-hmm. But it, would, it could make for some very good stories. Mm-hmm. If handled by the right people in the right way
1: so what is what's what do you think your ultimate takeaway from uh from from this is
2: um, I think it comes down to that if we've understood the universe the fundamentals of the universe not even the details but just the basic building blocks of how the universe is put together, we're never going to travel faster than light or send a or send a message faster than light um, and that's the way it is however i would also say we shouldn't let that get in the way of a cracking good story i don't believe in magic either and i write stories about magicians <laughs> um do you see what i mean it, it the tip you will come across examples in the press of things that seem to break faster than light but when you examine them they don't and I, again this comes up in doctor who, doctor who has a thing called Transmat. You stand on it, and it's rather like a beamy up Scotty device, um, uh, which is from the same era as Doctor Who. Now, the thing about this device is, you know, you, you transmit the information as a person from A to B, and reassemble them at B, Break them down at A, reassemble them at B. So if you, uh, modern research with quantum coupling can actually do this with single particles. Through quantum coupling you can effectively link a particle instantaneously to another particle theoretically anywhere in the universe. So you've done across the width of Australia. However, as a physicist pointed out, what people don't understand is, yeah, you can do that, and theoretically it's just an engineering problem to gear up from one particle to the human body with its god knows how many zillion particles but, and this is a really big but, in order to recreate the person at the other end, you have to send the co- a code of what it's like at the first end. And the code would have to be sent by sort of radio or laser or something. So the co- so the link-up might be instantaneous, but the decode will move at the speed of light. Hmm. So it's not a faster-than-light travel system at all.
1: Well, that's no fun.
2: <laughs> it, um, all it means is you... If you're travelling to Mars, you know you'll wink out on Earth, and I don't know, 14, 18 minutes later, you'll be reassembled on Mars. Yeah. Be pretty convenient, because it means you're moving at the speed of light, but you're not going faster than the speed of light.
1: That's true, and you better hope that radio wave doesn't get scattered somehow, or
2: <laughs> well. I'd be honest. I, would you want to step into a box like that? I wouldn't.
1: I would think um, long and hard about.
2: It was, that. I always wonder if if what they've assembled at the other end really is you. I mean, you might think you're you, but are you? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I once wrote a story about something like this, where the, what came out the other end was like a low res version of your personality, um, in even psychologically.
2: So. Yeah, there, there's this is um, the the latest. Games Workshop Warhammer game has this: their heroes and their fantasy system. If they die, their souls go back to heaven, and are re and the person is remade from the soul. But each time they remade, their personality is kind of greyed out. As you say, it loses resolution. Yeah, it becomes less human and more machine-like.
1: Well, so, uh, that's the problem with analog
3: souls,
2: and I think so as well. Of oh, uh, course. It's not a quantum system. It's based on magic. <laughs> you know the principles are saying.
3: But there's nothing well, is like that. it Arthur Clarke
2: any, any science so complicated you really don't understand the basic principles? Is magic? Yeah.
3: Well,
1: <laughs> In what, which
2: case, uh, you're quite right. My car operates by magic now.
1: Yes. Uh, well, to you, <laughs> what 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 yeah. are you uh, what are what are you working on these days, John? Are you writing anything? Uh, it sounds like you are uh, creating games.
2: Yeah, I'm doing. I've got into doing games a lot. I am I've reached the the age of true retirement. My first grandchild is born and uh you know, I've reached that sort of age where I I, I don't really do very much professionally anymore. But I'm designing games. And I like because that to me is a fun thing. I've got a I'm writing a book under contract for warlord games on um it's called Dark Ages Volume 2 for one of their game systems um Volume 1 came out uh, last year. Uh, I've got a book coming out in uh, a few weeks' time which uh, for a, company, a British company called Pen & Sword, which is uh, called Where Play Skirmish War Games. You can see what it's about. Which is an attempt to do Hollywood-style shoot-'em-ups using miniature soldiers played at real speed. Um, I've been working on, on uh, modern fighter combat, because I got fascinated with that because it was, um, you know, Britain's just bought the Lightning Two, the F-35.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And when you look at the F-35, you look at it, you think, why the hell did this thing cost so much money and why have we bought it? It's caused real puzzlement in Britain because the Navy and RAF, they're incredibly enthusiastic, you know, waving their arms and jumping up and down, saying it's the greatest thing and sliced bread. But when you look at it, it doesn't fly very fast, particularly, it, it doesn't maneuver very fast it it, uh, it costs a huge amount of money and you think what the hell makes this a fighter and i got very interested in delving into the technology and once you get into the technology you suddenly you realize that you've got to change your whole thought about what a fighter plane is um and i, I was reminded of the 1930s when um monoplane fighters came in, the pilots resisted it because they were used to biplanes and air combat was all about turning, you know, dogfighting. And these hugely powerful monoplanes didn't dogfight at all. Um, that's not how it was done. I mean, you, you'd you still read about dogfights in World War Two, but they, they didn't dogfight. Um, one old pilot explained how they did it in the Battle of Britain. He said, you know, you you approach the you approach the bombers, you try and slide through the 109s, and then and the whole squadron goes in for the bombers in formation, and when you get close enough, you close your eyes and press the fire button, and eight guns open up, and you all open up your eight guns, and you rocket through the formation, firing all the time, and when you get to the other side, you open your eyes, you think oh my god i'm still alive <laughs> <laughs> and look around to see who isn't in the formation anymore mm-hmm. uh, and that, that sort of change is coming because what this is all about is beyond visual range combat uh, there's a new um european missile called um oh god what's the thing called um uh, tornado, something like tornado i can't remember the exact name but it, what it really is is a miniature cruise missile, but it's designed to fit into the weapons base of American weapon bay um, aircraft. So it's the size of a Sparrow. It looks like... It's sort of vaguely physically similar to the American Sparrow missile that goes all the way back to Vietnam. But it's actually a cruise missile with ramjets. And this thing has a 400-kilometre range. Now, so what is an F-35 for? Well, what it's for, it's very difficult to detect it's massively equipped with sensors itself and where most of the money's gone is a is a ergonomics um information processing center that does all the analysis for the pilot and presents him with a situation report so he can look around the plane and he looks through the plane and he can see what's happening all around him on his visor now that, that's where the money's gone mm. this the british are fitting their new missile the new euro missile to it uh it it doesn't matter that it doesn't go that fast it doesn't matter that it doesn't turn that fast because it will never get that close to an enemy plane what will happen is there'll be an electronic war going on at about 400 kilometers and when you get within 67 kilometers you're in the no escape zone of the new european missile The no-escape zone means you can't avoid an attack by manoeuvre. Your only hope is electronic warfare or a last-ditch flip and hope the missile misses. And the no-escape zone of this missile is 67 kilometres. The reason is that a traditional Sparrow, say, it fires the rocket motors. And for a lot of its travel, it's actually just cruising and slowing down. So, um, and the missile's got to come in at about, uh, not, got to be able to turn 90 G at the end of its turn to hit an aircraft turning at 9 G. Well, what this new missile does is it cruises in on ramjets and at the last minute it turns its rocket back on. If so, if you see what I mean, It becomes a, it behaves at its final approach, just like an infrared sidewinder. Now, modern sidewinders are hellishly efficient. Um, the, the latest sidewinder will have something like a 95% kill rate, and it's all angle, and not just all angle than the target, but it's all angle on where the target is for you. you. You can look it up on the internet, you can fire these things, they'll, they'll spin through 180 degrees and attack a plane behind you, head on. Now, yeah. when you can do that, you look at the Russian planes with their superb maneuverability, but you ask yourself, why does it matter? It doesn't really matter the, the plane doesn't even have to be pointing towards the target do you see
1: yeah well if the if the missile's more maneuverable than the plane, it doesn't matter if the plane it came from is maneuverable or not right the other
2: thing about the new European missile is um, it has a it's um, fully data linked I think it's the first one that is so it's commonplace for the missiles to receive data from the firing or similar aircraft so that the aircraft can give them course corrections. Because hmm. when you fire it, the missile knows where the target was, but of course it takes time to get there. So it, what you have is mid course correction.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, but what the new missile does is um, it has data down as well as data up. So you can fire it at way out. And when it gets into the, the area where the enemy planes are, it's got its own um, radar and seats, uh, seat seek. Seek ahead; it will radio back to either the plane that fired it, or another F-35 that's cruising around, giving it scout information about what's out there at long range, so that the second wave of missiles that will be following um, will be able to be course corrected without the plane itself knowing the exact targeting position of the enemy. <laughs> Very, do you see what that's I really mean? So. It's all about electronics. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've this is, got this game working, and everybody seems to like it. I can't persuade any publisher to take it because um, it sounds like magic. It, it's not, but it's not dogfighting. Um, but when you do do it, you realise how you realise why the F twenty two they ceased production at one hundred and twenty planes. It's not worth building. What the F twenty two is is a stealth fighter designed to dogfight, mm-hmm. and that's pointless. Um, the F thirty five is a far more potent weapon, not potent dogfighter, but potent weapon, and it's cheaper.
1: Sounds like what they you know call an order of magnitude improvement. And
2: yes, or... it, it's not a difference in in scale; it's a complete jump in quality. Mm-hmm. It, it, as I say, mm-hmm. it's like um, yeah, okay. when the Russians introduced the first monoplane fighter. Suddenly, you had a machine that <laughs> that on paper, couldn't compete against um, the Japanese biplanes it was up against. But in real life, it was killing them because it just didn't fight fair. It came zooming (laughs) in at huge, high speed, unloaded from very heavy weapon batteries because it had all that power to carry the weight. And then it would um, zoom away again. And of course, this became Europe quickly fastened on it. And we this is what Messerschmitts and Spitfires did, and America did. You know, you started building Tomahawks and the P-47. The P-47 was the ultimate monoplane zoom-bang climber. You know, you you didn't, when you attacked a, a Japanese aircraft with a P-47, you didn't try and turn with it in a dogfight. You came rocketing in at 150 miles faster so than it could go. You unloaded with a massive firepower of eight heavy machine guns. And then you simply stuck the nose up and zoomed away. And then when you got outside, you turned around again. And that is how the Phantoms fought MiG-17s and MiG-21s in Vietnam. You, uh, they, they didn't try and turn with them, but a Phantom could accelerate around the outside of a circle faster than a MiG-17 could turn on the inside of a circle. Hmm. And uh, then they used to use uh, heat-seeking missiles. Most planes of Vietnam were not shot down with guns, but with heat-seeking missiles. That's true of the Vietnamese as well, uh, incidentally. <laughs> Sorry, we're way off subject, well, aren't we? <laughs> yeah,
1: but here's to the world's democracies always fighting unfairly, then. Uh,
2: well, I, uh, I always laugh. I'm American once. Americans like to criticize Montgomery once said to me, you know, he's more than much of a general. He never fought unless he had overwhelming superiority. And I said, yeah, peace the, troops who fought under him were bloody glad of it, mate. <laughs> I think
1: that's the... Never
2: fight fair. I think I've that's the... Which American general, isn't it? The one who um, was in charge of the Allied forces in the Gulf War, who said my job is not to have a fair fight, it's to make sure it's as unfair as possible.
1: Exactly. You know, I mean, fair that, fight that is the... Uh, that's also the philosophy matches. of my favorite football <laughs> <and> coaches. <laughs>
2: um, but the thing about this, when I push this game, I realize that what I've got here is a starfighter game. Because the way these BVR planes operate is more like a science fiction starfighter than it is a old-fashioned dogfighter. Um, uh, things like that. That is a
1: super cool, super cool insight, John. Um, I would like. Jets. How about you write us an article about the uh, about that? I, I love that idea. Love
2: to. That we. I spent hours poring over it, uh, and I thought about writing a book. You know, because tell me there's no. I found there's no single book explaining all this. You have to actually get into all the um, popular mechanic articles and aeronautical articles. And But it it does explain all the people, you know, the elderly engineers who designed the F-16 who are criticizing the F-35. It won't turn, you know. It won't climb, you know. It won't um, accelerate fast, you know. They're all completely missing the point.
1: Yeah. Well, I can... Uh Write it. I'll take it. I'm, I'm, I can virtually guarantee that Tony will want it. So yeah, <laughs> let's, um, let's, let's, do, let's do a shortened... I thought
2: uh, the F-35 was a complete waste of money, I'll be well, honest.
3: Yeah.
2: And I thought, why the hell have we spent this huge sum of money for these 120 Poxy airplanes when we could have bought um, you know twice as many Eurofighters for the same money? Well, the answer is the Eurofighter is the, one of the best planes in the world, at the end of a development line. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the Gloucester Gladiator, you know. It's, a, it's the most superb biplane ever made. The F-35 is something completely different. Huh.
1: Well, that's really cool. I want that article, John. <laughs> but right now, the article that is up at the com website is Why FTL Will End the Universe in Six Ways to Avoid It in a Science Fiction Story by Dr. John Lambshead. Um the uh the polymath biologist who we all um we all um go to for cool insights into into science and thanks so much for talking to us about this and about the uh, F35 which I want that article John
2: <laughs> okay it's a pleasure as always to talk to you Tony
1: Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, Book 1 in the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers, No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 5
0: Eighteen years ago You shouldn't be here This is my place Young Ashok crouched next to the tiny fire Trying to soak up enough warmth to get some feeling back into his hands Three days of freezing cold and terrible terrain had taken its toll on his body Devadas was keeping watch at the mouth of the cave They'd been warned that the wolves were gigantic, big enough to latch onto a sleeping man's ankle and drag him out into the night before he could even scream for his companions to save him. Exhausted from the climb, the other acolytes had gone immediately to sleep. Devadas had volunteered to take the first watch. He nodded toward the snoring bodies, huddled together for warmth under their only blanket. You're always so damn sure about everything. They've been training for five years, I've been here for four. You've only been here for barely two. I'm impressed you've made it this far at all, but you're not ready. I won't let you down, Ashok assured the older acolyte. Opening and closing his hands, Ashok was pleased to see that only a few of his calluses had been torn off by the rocks, and there was no sign of frostbite. Yet, that climb was one of the most difficult things he'd ever done. Mindarin allowed me, If he thought I was going to slow you down, he would have forbidden me from coming. Devadas snorted. I think he was too surprised that the smallest kid in the program stepped out of line to try and tackle the heart. I've never seen a man that fond of words struck mute before. We could die up here. Aren't you scared? Probably. Ashok thought it over. It was hard to explain. He assessed danger and probability as well as anyone else perhaps even better than most because he just couldn't work up any emotion about the subject, so he could say he had some measure of ability to experience fear. It just didn't move him like it did others. It was simply there, in the background. As suggested warning, nothing more. Yes? How old are you anyway, Ashok? Twelve. Ashok had to think about it for a moment. It was always cold and snowy and devacular, year-round. He wasn't permitted to have a calendar. Protector training was so tiring, unrelenting, and sleep was allowed at such odd, inconsistent hours that the days sort of bled together. So he wasn't actually sure what season it was. I'll be twelve in the fall. Then you're the youngest to ever make the attempt. And it is fall. How can you tell? If it was winter, the snow would be over our heads instead of just up to our waists. Oh, I suppose I'm 12 then. Happy birthday. Thank you. There wasn't much room in the cave, but Ashok managed to get his sword out. It was an inferior design, made of regular, boring steel, without any of the beauty or power of Angruvadal. But it was what he'd been issued, so he needed to make sure that it was properly maintained. The blade was clean, but Ashok wanted to make sure no moisture had been trapped in the sheath during the climb, which might cause rust. Sweat was salt water, impure as the ocean, and he'd certainly sweated a lot during the day's journey up the mountainside. He removed a cloth and an oil vial from his pack, and began carefully cleaning the sword. Ashok had never been good at conversation, but talking seemed to be the proper thing to do. How old are you? Sixteen, winterborn. Devadas went back to staring into the dark. You should turn back in the morning. There's no shame in not making it to the heart for any of us, especially on the first try, and especially not for you, It wouldn't surprise me if some of them give up as well. I could see it in their eyes when we stopped for the night. If you're thinking about defeat, you've already lost. So you won't be going down alone. Turn back, Ashok. Our rations are half gone. It's only going to get colder, the air thinner, and you've heard the rumors. The seniors won't talk about it, but there's something far more dangerous than wolves living at the summit. Once we cross the glacier, we either reach the heart or the mountain claims us. You're the top acolyte in the program, Ashok said. Stronger, faster, tougher, and always confident, Devadas was easily the best among them. He was the one Ashok looked up to the most. If anyone can make it, it's you. I'm not worried about me, stupid. I just don't want your sliding down a crevasse to your death to be on my conscience. Mindrin says that evil lives in the water. Snow might not be as impure, like salt water, but it's still out to get us. That's why it makes itself slippery. Don't worry, Devadas. I won't be a burden. But if I start to slow you down, you may leave me behind to be devoured by wolves. I promise not to hold a grudge. He chuckled. Strangely enough, I believe you. The two of them were silent for a long time. The only sounds in the cave were the crackle of burning twigs and the snoring of exhausted boys. Satisfied that his sword was clean, sharp, and ready, Ashok returned it to its sheath. You miss it, don't you? Devadas asked. The ancestor blade, I mean. Yes. It was difficult to explain what it was like, being away from something that had absorbed a portion of his life's spark. It gnawed at him, worse than hunger or cold or pain, a constant feeling of loss and weakness. More than anything. That's why you're still doing this now, isn't it? You think reaching the heart will prove something. You can't go on living without that sword. I've seen it before. What happens to a bearer when they lose that bond? You'd rather die on this mountain than go another night without that sword by your side. The older acolyte was correct. Most people were incapable of understanding what it was like to lose a part of yourself. But proving himself worthy would earn it back. You've seen it before, because your father was a bearer like me. He was a great man, and a hero. Our house was respected, feared even. And then one day, our sword broke, shattered into a hundred pieces. Nobody knows what my father did to offend it. Such a thing was always a possibility with the ancestor blades. No mortal man could fully understand their convoluted sense of honor. So when one chose to give up the ghosts, that was the end of it. Asher could never heard Devadas speak freely about this subject before, so he listened intently. Just like that, it was all over. Allies abandoned us. Friends betrayed us. And within a few seasons, my house was defeated and consumed by another, without so much as a sternly worded letter from the capital in protest. Now we're just a poor province in some other family's lands. There was no inheritance for me, so I was obligated to the order, because who wants a constant reminder of the family's shame around? Every man has his place. Platitudes. Devadas muttered as he stared off into the darkness. It would have been mine. I know that sword would have picked me next. You can't know that. No one knows the will of the blade until they try and wield it. It shows my father and my grandfather before him. His father beat its bearer in a duel and proved his worthiness. They forged our house through the strength of their will... Devadas gave a bitter laugh. My birthright, my destiny, my place. Taken? I am truly sorry for your loss, Ashok said, hoping that his sincerity came through. Devadas studied him for a time, his expression inscrutable. It doesn't matter now. He returned to his vigil. I have this watch, get some sleep. Tomorrow we have to climb to the top of the world. Two of the acolytes had been too weak to continue and had turned back at the glacier, leaving only three to continue the test. There was no dishonor in quitting then. Part of being a protector was recognizing your physical and mental limitations. They were assets to be spent in defense of the law, not tossed away in futile gestures. Those who turned back would be able to try to attain senior rank again in the future. But for the three who remained, they had crossed the point of no return. They would reach the heart or die trying. Another lesson of the order was that once committed, you held nothing back. The air was so thin, it filled their lungs but provided no strength. Two more days of marching, climbing, tripping, and sliding across the bleak white surface had left them incoherent with exhaustion. At one point, the ice had broken beneath Ashok's feet, dropping him into a hole. Trapped and freezing, Ashok knew Devadas would have been justified in leaving him behind, but the older student had spent hours digging him out instead. There were no more conversations during the night, as speaking took too much energy. They made their way across the mountains, following the landmarks the masters had spoken of, sometimes on snowshoes, other times with picks and ropes, but it was always slow and difficult. No matter how tired he was, or how hard it was to keep his eyes open when they stopped, Ashok always made sure his sword was maintained. Mendarin had taught them that if they took care of their weapons, Their weapons would take care of them. A storm forced the acolytes to take cover for a full day, huddled in a shallow cave, miserable and shivering. On the final morning, they ate the last of their dried meat and washed it down with melted snow. They'd resupply from the stores at the heart, or they'd starve. Acolytes often went days without food, but it was difficult to keep moving through terrain like this and stay warm on an empty stomach. Starvation was an excellent motivator to continue plodding on. Noon of the final day was clear and bright. So bright, in fact, that they all had to wear leather strips over their eyes with small cuts to see through. Glare could sunburn the eyeball, leaving them blind and helpless. Despite the sun being visible, Ashok had never been this cold before. They were nearing the peak of the tallest mountain in the nation, he had never even imagined that this kind of cold could exist, but it was worth it because from up here, it was as if he could see the entire world. Logically, Ashok knew it wasn't the whole world, not even but a small part of their continent of Locke. But it was still an incredible view. Magnificent! Devadas paused next to him and scanned the horizon, It's almost enough to make you understand how the superstitious still believe in gods. Ashok wanted to say something, but his mouth was so dry that he had to take a drink from his canteen before he could speak. The only reason the water hadn't completely frozen was because he kept it next to his body. He pointed toward the north. Where the plains turn brown, that's the beginning of the great desert house of Saga. I bet we can almost see the capital from here. Then he pointed toward the northeast, across the plains, to where another smaller mountain range loomed. Thou, and on the other side of those are the lands of Vidal, my house. He slowly turned in a circle, like the hand of a clock still pointing, naming off great house territories as he went. Zarnobat, Carsoen, Akashan. He turned to the south, where the mountain sloped down toward the distant sea. Devacula. Home, Devadas agreed. Ashok kept turning. He couldn't actually see those distant lands. But he liked to imagine that he could. Macau, then west. Utara, Harbin, and a full circle back to the north. Gujara, Volcan. So, you paid attention to Mandarin's geography lecture. I'd present you with an achievement ribbon, but I didn't think to put any in my pack. Don't you understand, Devadas? All of those great houses, we're the ones who get to maintain the peace between them. Ashok gestured at the mighty expanse. Maybe the altitude was making him lightheaded, but it was a lot to soak in. All of this is our responsibility." Without the law, there is no union. And without us, there would be no law. You're a strange kid, Ashok, Devadas said as he started marching toward the summit. Ashok took one last look at the world before resuming his journey. It was the strongest he'd felt in days.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a custom Shelby F-35 with dual quantum transmission and Hellfire causality buster missiles. Plus, thanks awe and plaudits for Dr. John Lamb's head, author of Why FTL Will End the Universe, and Six Ways to Avoid It in an SF Story. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.